Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune Podcast. I have a returning guest uh, on the podcast today, Steve Sanangelo of the srsrockoreport.com. Steve, how are you doing? Uh, Matt, doing great. It's been a while and uh, there's crazy things, uh, energy crisis and, and lots of things happening in the market. So we've got plenty to talk about. Absolutely. We, we got a ton of talk about precious metals, silver, gold, energy, the energy cliff, energy return on investment, uranium, all sorts of things to talk about. You know, I want to start off real quick for, for my listeners. I want to start off by saying this. Um, this is something that you don't want to miss. And, and I know that before we've even you know started the interview here, because I've done a couple of these with Steve in the past. And invariably, they I find that they have the highest, some of the highest watch times um, across my channel, that's you know it's been around for, for over five years now, and uh, and I think that says maybe as much about myself and my own um, solo podcast as they do about Steve and 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 what he has to say on on some of these subjects. And I mean, this is compared to other interview guests I have as well. Um, what what you're going to get today is not an echo chamber. We're we're not stepping into an echo chamber right here, but a lot of really unique ideas um, that draw on a lot of different. Um, aspects of, of the economy, a lot of different um, sectors of the economy and markets. And so I always look forward to these interviews a ton. So so once again, Steve, thanks for coming on and, uh, and, and maybe we can get started here. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate you saying that. And I think what we try to do at the SRS Rock Report is connect dots. And I think there's a lot of people out there talking about different specializations, wherever they are, and uh, everything kind of connects to each other. And when you understand that, and when you look outside the box, you see things that a lot of people don't see. And so I think a lot of people think that's refreshing. And uh, it's, it's important to understand this information, because as I've mentioned, it's all based on the energy. Without energy, there's no economy. Absolutely. I think that's a good place to start off. I mean, uh, f- for those that haven't listened to Steve before, he's a precious metals guy. He loves precious metals. We're going to talk about them, I'm sure, a-, a ton today. But, but like you said, you know, the basis for for your thesis about you know why you think owning silver and gold um, will be of a benefit to an investor in the future, it starts with energy, and it starts with EROI, energy return on investment. You know, it's been you know it's been a couple of years now that that we've been chatting about this, and of course, you've been talking about it well before that. Um, about uh, energy return on investment and and kind of the coming energy cliff. I'm going to let you define those those terms. Um, you're probably going to do a much better job than I. Uh, but you know, even in just the past few weeks, past few months, I'm starting to wonder. You know, as I kind of observe some of the things happening around the globe, some of the energy crises that we've we've been witnessing. You know, are we? Are we kind of getting at the early stages of this energy cliff that you're talking about? A, a rapid decline in you know energy return on investment. Uh, where are we at with the timeline for this? I mean, we're seeing what's happening in China, where we're seeing what's happening in the EU with some of their energy markets, even here in the United States, energy prices. And when when I say energy, I mean referring to to you know gasoline, uh, um, crude oil products, and across the board, uh, natural gas, uh, coal. You know, where are we at? sort of in the timeline for this energy cliff? You know, if this was our baseball game, uh, what inning are we in right now? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess the best way to answer that is uh, we're we're in the first few innings because nothing happens overnight. But if you go back in history uh, and, and, and look at a lot of the civilizations, they took a long time to build up. 
And then they get to a certain level and the populations are so large just to maintain it. It just consumes a massive amount of energy. So as Lucia Seneca said, it, we head we head over the Seneca cliff. And so it goes up slowly, the chart, and then it comes down pretty quickly. And so we're, we're still in the first few innings, but due to several factors like the pandemic and then green energy. See, green energy is really starting to mess up the system because it takes a lot more natural gas now. Because a lot of the, these countries that are using uh, green uh, wind and solar to offset the intermittency, they ramp up natural gas and they're, they're shutting down a decommissioning coal plants. And so they're actually using more natural gas. And so this is this was an issue that they're starting to hit now. And it's, it's right now, it seems to be more natural gas where it's in coal in, in China. But yes, it is the first stage because I think we're going to hit this peak of energy production. And I think by 2025, that's kind of my gut number where we're going to probably increase a little bit more, stay where we are. And then after 2025, especially in the U.S., we're going to see shale production start to decline. And then uh, we're going to see production really start to decline. And we have to remember, you can't go from oil to coal. Yeah, we got a lot of coal. And we have a lot of natural gas, but it takes diesel equipment, diesel excavators, and it takes diesel trucks and ships and trains and barges to uh, extract and, and transport coal. So if you have problems with oil and petroleum, you're going to have a less coal production. That's just the way it is. So I, it, it's this falling energy return on investment. And to conclude it, it's not just the energy return on investment today or recently. This is the same thing in the Roman Empire, the same thing in the late Bronze Age, and even the Mayan Empire. When they hit the peak of their energy return on investment, and back then it was wood because they used wood to make charcoal to smelt metals, and it consumed forests. We're talking millions and millions. I, I, I said this several times, a billion trees were cut down in the ancient Roman Empire during the peak, about 50 years, a billion trees to do all this, their economic and, and warfare and, and building homes and ships and, and heating and cooking and smelting metals, a billion trees. And so that that's the issue. We're facing the same dynamics with oil, natural gas and coal now. But yeah, I mean, uh, listeners here, once we're once we're done here, you can check out our, our, our last discussion back in the spring. Uh, and we're talking about that exact subject and, and the idea that, you know, there's places in the Mediterranean, uh, border in the Mediterranean that, you know, two, three, four thousand years ago uh, were probably far more forested, um, look starkly different than they do now. Because when we think of the, a lot of those places, we think of, you know, deserts or borderline deserts, very arid lands. And that wasn't the case. And a lot of that was because of, you know, deforestation in order to, you know, feed the empire, uh, whatever given empire, in many cases, the Roman empire, but, you know, the other empires that, that sprung up along the way. Um, yeah. Uh, it, okay. So, so before we move on to the next um, question here about, about, about precious metals, real quick energy cliff. So, so you kind of throw out the number 2025 and, and we're not going to hold you to that date exactly, but, but what does that look like? You know, energy cliff, what is that? How does that play out in the markets? How does that play out in you know our daily lives? Well, you see, there's so much debt now, even though they talk about all these reserves and a lot of the reserves in the Middle East are overstated. They overstated their reserves back in the 1980s because they could export more oil. And so 
Uh, several, one started and then they increased their reserves, but they didn't really find any more oil. So it allowed them to export more oil. And then, and then there, Iraq and you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, UAE, they all in, inflated their reserves. And so those are still on the books, but the, the, they're, not, they're not real reserves. So there's, there's these reserves out there that are fictitious, really. And so I think what happens by 2025, uh, we, we could see, uh, it, you know, the oil production go back up from prior to the pandemic shutdown. And then it's going to it's going to kind of fluctuate, maybe add a little bit. But by 2025, especially the U.S. was the main source of global production growth, eight and a half million barrels. And if you include natural gas liquids, you know, that's like another 11, 12 million barrels a day that the U.S. added to the global system. Well, that's going to get into serious trouble after 2025 and probably will start before then. But I look at 2025 and that's almost, that's like what, three years from now? No, it's almost, yeah, it's about three years from now. That's when we're going to start seeing trouble. And then as 2026, 27, it's going to get worse and worse. And after 2030, that's when I really start seeing big, big drop-offs in oil production. And, and, and that's when I see and, and how that's going to affect that's going to affect the global supply chain. That's going to affect asset values. That's going to affect so many things that really, you know, I can't really comprehend, but it's going to be very disruptive. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, a good comparison is if, if we're bringing it back to, you know, the Roman Empire, how does your daily life change? How does how does the economy in a given city change? If, you know, the nearest forest uh, is no longer, you know, three miles down the road, but 15 miles down the road or, or 150 miles down the road. And of course, what you're talking about there in Middle Eastern oil, um, you're talking about energy return on investment. Middle Eastern oil is, is cheap <laughs> compared to compared to U.S. oil. Uh, most oil, a lot of our shale oil, it's cheap compared to Venezuelan oil. And that's kind of the key, uh, the key factor that you're kind of talking about there, correct? Yes, but the Middle Eastern oil is getting more and more expensive to produce, and it's the energy return on investment is falling, and the consumption of oil by the Middle Eastern consumers themselves is increasing. So the net exports are going to be falling just based on that. We have to remember, you know, Saudi Arabia and a lot of these countries are expanding their economies where they're consuming more of their own oil, which means if production just stays the same, less that's less exports. They call it net exports. So, but if production starts to decline and their consumption even goes up, then it, that's a double whammy that the market still does not realize that either. So that's just another dynamic that we're going to see play out over the next 10 years. Okay, so so let's bring this back to precious metals then. Uh, how is, you know, even just thus far in 2021 or in the past few years, how has this affected, you know, precious metals prices, uh, markets, uh, you know, the all-in, you know, sustained costs for, for a lot of this, you know, production of an ounce of silver, an ounce of gold, uh, as well as, you know, how do you anticipate this, you know, affecting the silver and gold markets in the future? You know, as cheap energy, which is already, you know, as, as you just said, you know, less cheap, I guess, as, as it was maybe five or 10 years ago. But as that, that becomes more and more scarce, uh, how does that affect the silver and gold markets? Why are silver and gold so important when, when we're talking about this, this energy topic? 
Well, because there are very few assets, Matt, that uh, are energy stores of value. And we have to remember, and I've said this before, I, I take an experiment and don't use energy all day. And, and I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, putting wood in your fireplace, but whatever it takes to do something, you can't use any energy but yourself. What would all, all that you can do? So if you're taking a shower and using hot water, you can't use it. Uh, if you're going to cook breakfast and you're going to use your oven, your stove or a microwave, cook co- make coffee, you can't use it because it's that energy. Then if you're going to go to work, you know, you can't drive a car or take a bus. Uh, and then when you get to work, if you work, you know, in a computer, you can't use a computer because it's run by energy. So if you if you just pull the energy plug, there's no economy. And so what base what the asset all the financial assets, real estates, stocks, and bonds, they're all based on energy. But most people don't know that. They base them on other things, uh, financial metrics and economic metrics. But they're based on earnings, price to earnings. Bonds are based upon, you know, an economy functioning. So you can get your the bond, you know, the, have profits from the economy to pay back that bond. Because if you buy a 30-year bond from the U.S. government, you need 30 years of economic activity to get the value of that bond back. And so these are the things that are not taken into consideration. So when energy gets into trouble, Matt, all those assets are going to get into serious trouble. But now when you have an ounce of gold, an ounce of silver, that energy was spent already. And that's what that coin of silver or, or bar of gold, that's what it represents. So somebody else has to trade you an equivalent of that energy. And that's based upon right now. But when energy gets even more scarce, you're going to see uh, the institutions and investors move into the metals to protect wealth out of these, these assets that are going to lose even more value. And that's going to make the situation even worse. And so I think that's that's the dynamic of the precious metals. And right now, it's still based upon this, I call it uh, the, the economy based upon we're going to have business as usual. So we had a lot of, a lot of investors move into ETFs and the exchanges, and that pushed the price of the metals up. But now they think, oh, well, you know, it, we're not going to maybe see all this massive inflation. And so there, no one's really worried like they were last year, but that, that's, that's very bad to think that way because the energy situation is just going to get worse. And as it does get worse, these, these smart institutions, large investors, small and medium investors, they're going to protect wealth in the precious metals. So that, that's the dynamic I see coming as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think of it as, as, you know, with an ounce of silver, an ounce of gold, you're you're bottling up a certain amount of energy that that went into, um, you know, the production of of that, you know, the, the the production, the mining, the refinement of that metal, the minting of that metal. Um, there's there's energy that goes into that. I mean, silver and gold um, have and continue to have a monetary function, a monetary value, uh, and and that's part of it. And part of it's you know even in just industrial, you and I might not have directly in an industrial use for silver and gold we don't we don't own any uh you know <laughs> manufacturing of 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 computers and whatnot but of course you know the devices we're using right now to record this interview they use precious metals um uh, the, the cars we use the houses uh, everything across the board and of course um they, they have a value to to the uh the companies you know that that use them for that purpose um you, you touched on something there uh, inflation uh, you know, energy cliff. 
um, and 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 falling energy return on investment. How does that play into this this picture of inflation going forward? Well, you know, during the collapse of the late Bronze Age, uh, what happened was the the, the price of, of bronze, copper, uh, really went up uh, when the when the shortages started to hit. But then, when you have the collapse, then then it it becomes different. So what I see now, because most of the most of investors are in stocks, bonds, and real estate, and they own businesses. That's where ninety nine percent of the wealth is. Less than one percent is in uh, physical gold and silver and paper ETFs and, and and et cetera. The issue is this: when when the market starts to fall apart, you're going to see in, in these investors move into the metals because. I guess the, the problem is that there's not going to be the energy to continue running the system the way it is. And so I, I think when the market is, uh, you know, and I, I've kind of, I'm trying to explain this in, in, a, in a much more clearer way, but you see, I, I see all these people, the younger crowd now, and they're totally into the crypto space and technology. And they have this false sense, Matt, that this is the future. They think that this future is going to go on for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I believe in the next 5, 10 years, it's going to be so much different than what the younger generation realizes. And they're the ones who are really into high tech. You know, they're into all the new gadgets and all these new things. And you see, I think that's the big mass psychology problem, that the market is totally ignorant of the real situation with energy. And when energy gets into trouble, high tech gets into serious trouble. I hope I answered your question. No, I, I think absolutely. And then you also kind of touched on, well, okay, so, you, so you're talking about precious metals, you're talking about um, you know, broader you know, investors um, in the marketplace. Uh, those those takes a, take a lot of different shapes and forms, individual investors and hedge funds and, and, uh, and pensions and, 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 and Mutual funds, et cetera. Uh, so, so something we talked about off air was was precious metals in, in relation to those, and 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 when we see this big move into precious metals, um, you're talking about ETFs. You're talking about ETFs, and and maybe some misconceptions about this. Uh, the, the the idea of you know is that silver there or not in in ETFs such as you know SLV run by iShares, and uh, and 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 how does that kind of relate to to uh, investors that, that want to get into precious metals? You know, why is there, you know, why do we, why should we draw a distinction between physical, you know, silver eagles or physical silver and, uh, and ETFs? Well, I, I before I, I talk about this and it's very important, thanks for bringing it up. There are, I, I still believe it's important to own the physical metal. And if you're a small or medium investor or, or even a large investor who has the ability to do that, it's important to own the physical metal, metal at your home, in a safe, or in a private vault. But you see, that's one market. And that when you when you look at the precious metal community and you see them on social media, they're, they're just, they seem to just look at the small to medium market. But there's a whole different market. There's the large and institutions. And I've said this before, right now, the European natural gas price has exploded. Last year in May, it was three euros, an MC, a million MCF. That's what it was, three euros. It's now trading, it hit 100 yesterday. Well, you see, 
that that you're not this the energy people the energy companies in Europe looking for natural gas they're not going to go to their retail store knock on the door and say listen I want to buy a thousand of your 20 pound LPG tanks they're not going to do that that's insane they're going to go on the open market they're going to see if if they can get some LNG from the United States they're going to get it from Libya or somewhere or that or from the Russia that's where they're going to get their natural gas from the same thing with the big institutions. And it's really the big institutions and large investors that are the big moves in the market because in the price moves in the last 15 plus years in gold and silver, a large percentage of the moves are when uh, funds move into large funds, move into the ETFs and the exchanges. And we've actually seen more physical bullion buying when the price falls because savvy investors are buying more physical when the price goes down. So so we need to understand there's two different markets. Now, if we listen to the precious metal community, they say uh, that, you know, the JP Morgan iShares SLV is a fraud. I hear that all the time. Well, why would JP Morgan come out, you know, last year, or I'm sorry, this year, after the uh, February uh, Wall Street silver squeeze, when there's this huge demand, they, and they change their prospectus that if they have another big surge in demand again, they're not going to be, they may not be able to access the silver. I believe the Aberdeen silver ETF also changed their prospectus. See, this is the, this is the thing we need to understand. If JP Morgan can print all the paper silver, it would not have changed its prospectus. So what is going to happen? This is my, my analysis. This is my feelings. What's going to happen when they really the big institutions and investors move into silver and gold, when this energy crisis and cliff really starts to impact other asset values negatively, they're going to suffer the same problems that the small investors have been experiencing, delays in getting metal or much higher premiums. And that, that's what's going to happen. So we need to realize there's two different markets. We should welcome. Um, uh, we should welcome the institutions moving into the silver ETF. We should welcome that, as we should welcome more people buying physical silver. They're both two different markets, and when when we see this huge move in, that's when we're going to see explosive prices in the metals. Okay, so um, kind of switching gears here. By, by the way, great job covering that. <laughs> I don't want to move right past that. Um, I, I think. I think. Uh, that that all makes good sense, and and I think you're absolutely right. I think you you kind of brought up BlackRock as <laughs> moving into to precious metals. Um, hypothetically, we're we're talking about that off air, and that's kind of the the joke more recently. BlackRock moving into you know real estate and and whatnot, but but you got you got to wonder you know why why is that the case when it comes to real estate or, or another real asset, and and uh, and you you kind of have to think in those same terms when it comes to um, comes to precious metals that that they'll be moving into precious metals big big investment firms big institutional investors moving into precious metals um, in in a in a way that we haven't seen before and and, and again you know to, to kind of finish what you were talking about earlier you said back in the spring was this the spring of 2021 or spring of 2020 that natural gas was was three dollars yes it was the spring of uh, it was May of 2020. Uh, during the pandemic shutdown, the market, I call it just-in-time inventory, they said, we don't need any natural gas. So the price just collapses, right? It goes down to three euros because there was people were shut down. There was no manufacturing and they didn't need the natural gas. Well, in just a year, a little a year and a half, 
it's totally turned around. Well, really, it started it started in the in the uh, in the middle of this year, and now they Europe is. And we're gonna, we could talk about this, but Europe is is considerably lower where they need their natural gas uh, inventories for the winter, and so. This is the same dynamic, the light bulb that's going to go off into the large institution. Oh, my gosh, we need to have exposure. I'm not talking, you know, you always hear this. Well, you know, in the SLV, what if they want to get delivery and they can't? I can tell you 95% of institutions don't care about taking delivery. They want the exposure because what do they do? All the institutions want is exposure to asset values. They want asset values to go up. That's what they want, right? So if silver's going up, they're happy. That's what they want. They want exposure to silver. And, and, and the reason why silver is going to go up is because there's not that much of it, especially there's actually half the amount of, I call, physical uh, a public silver, which is ETF and exchange, than all the silver that has been purchased by small and medium, maybe some large investors taken off the market, bars and coins, put at their home in a safe or a private vault. It's about 3.1 billion since 2001. There's about 1.5 billion that the large institutions can access. And that's not much silver. So I think this dynamic, the market has not woke up yet, just like the same thing with the price of uh, natural gas in European natural gas at three. They, they, they took it for granted. Now they're, they're panicking. Big difference. I see that playing out in the silver and gold market in the future. You're right. I mean, 3.1 billion ounces, that's, you know, ballpark figure, 75 billion, which sounds like a lot. But but again, compared to something like the natural gas market, and and it's a drop in the bucket. And and you're right. I remember reading a very similar, you know, article to what you're referring to that, you know, about a month ago, uh, yeah, European gas inventories, they should have been full. And, and they weren't, you know, um, in preparation for winter. And, and even just in the past couple of weeks, we're continuing to see, yeah, problems with, with pipelines. And we'll get more into that here in a second. Um, problems with pipelines or, you know, the Russians are giving them, uh, you know, natural gas. And then maybe the next week, maybe they're, they're cutting, you know, the, the flow through, uh, cutting down on the flow through some of their pipelines. Um, it, it happens fast. It happens fast. Yes, it does. And, uh, you know, this is the, uh, the problem, what I call it, with running an economy at 100 miles an hour. And that's what we're doing. Cars are designed to run about 55, 60 miles an hour. They can go faster and they actually run better slower. But no one's going to do 35, 40 on, it, on an interstate. But when you're running at 100 miles an hour, and that's 100 million barrels of oil consumption a day, when you are consuming that much, the natural decline rate is between 5 and 6 million barrels a day. You've got to replace that every year. And we have been doing that, but that's the problem. That's why I see it's really it really becomes problematic by 2025 because we cannot we cannot replace that anymore. We've run out of, of, of high quality reserves. And so this is it's starting to show now in in different ways. And I think we, as we ramp up more green energy, it's going to make the situation even worse. You know, so, yeah, so that's that's the problem we're we're, we're facing with now. So I, I definitely want to touch on green energy here in a second, but but we, so we've been talking about the EU and some of their their energy problems. Uh, so devil's advocate, you know, if you're a you know a, a central planner, if you're somebody that doesn't want to see this energy cliff happening, or at least doesn't want other people to to um, be aware of it, you know, 
uh, while they can, you know, prepare themselves. Um, devil's advocate would say that, you know, this, this natural gas problem in Europe, that's political. You know, the Russians are just cutting off their gas supply. Um, you know, you look at, 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 you know, rising, uh, energy prices here in the United States, rising gas prices. Um, and, and you'll have some politicians targeting, uh, uh, crude oil companies, um, target, you know, the, the BPs or, or the Chevrons or what have you, um, and, and say that they're just, you know, trying to profiteer. Um, could, could you kind of break down some of that? I mean, debunk some of these misconceptions, debunk some of these these myths about some of these as energy crises and, and talk about why they're, you know, energy crises and, and not just, you know, it's so easy that, that if there's a political element to it or if there's an inflationary element to it or if there's a profit element to it for some of these companies, it's easy to to identify that as the, well, that must be the, the sole um, cause of, of some of these events. But but it certainly is uncanny that so many of them happen to be happening in in the same time time span, you know, a couple of months here that, that we've seen so many of these play out across the globe. So you know what what's really kind of the truth behind some of these? Well, let me give you one. Ex- I'll give you an example. You see, there's uh, one thing that we can bicker about is uh, the the time, the timeline when the, when we hit the energy cliff because. I get into some debates with some people who are more of the Austrian school of, of economics. And, you know, they believe that there should be all this, uh, you know, basically don't have any governments do any, you know, any regulation, just let business get in there and do whatever they want. So one of the things is the UK stopped fracking of, of gas. So some people say, well, you know, if they were allowed to frack for gas, they would have their own supply. They wouldn't be having shortages. Well, I, okay, let's say they do. Let's say they go in there and they get into the same problems that the shale industry in the United States is right now. Because, you know, in Texas, they're destroying the roads there between one and a half, two billion dollars of damage a year taking place in Texas because of these big trucks, millions of trucks load, truck loads running up and down the road, doing all this fracking, moving, you know, millions of pounds of sand and water just to frack to make oil and gas. And they're destroying the roads. That's just one aspect. But let's forget all that. So they, they do produce some natural gas. They, sh- they get to uh, frack in, in, in the UK. Okay, well, that, that may give them 10 years, maybe 15 years. So now let's go to fif- 10 years or 15 years from now. You've got the same problem. You've got the same energy problem. But you've just, you've actually screwed up more of the infrastructure. And you've, I mean, the water, the wastewater that comes out of fracking wells is is so toxic. So there's always a cost to everything, but we want to ignore that because we just got to let business do whatever they want. That's the idea. So that's one thing. The, the problem is this energy return on investment is an ongoing gauge. And now when you've got Russia trying to get oil and gas in the Arctic, that's the same thing as the Roman, ancient Roman Empire moving out of Italy, going up to the the Germanic area because they were having wars up there, not because they were bored, because they needed wood. So they're going far away places to get wood, to to continue business as usual, because wood was the energy of the Roman Empire, as well as oil, natural gas, and coal is the energy of the modern economy. So now we're going to all these far out places and this is this is why it's not this is why the energy crisis isn't short term if that's what you're asking Matt it's not a short term issue 
it could be resolved a little bit in a year or so, but then it just, we hit it again. It's not like the energy crisis during the 1970s, the Saudi Arabia oil embargo or the Iranian revolution where Ayatollah Khomeini took over and took off 4 million barrels a day of oil production from Iran. That that came back online eventually, but we're not going to have plan B. We just continue to fall. And so I think the crisis becomes chronic. There's, you know, acute crisis that happens and it goes away. Then there's a chronic and chronic price problems with energy. And that's where we're headed. And there's no solution. It's a predicament. And I think that's the difference. I, uh, you got to wonder heading into 2022, how some of these energy crises play out. Uh, we've, we've kind of been told, especially here in the United States, we've been told for, for months now that, um, that, that supply chain problems are temporary, that they're, they're going to get resolved. And, and they haven't. I mean, across the board, they haven't. In, in some areas, they've gotten maybe somewhat better. In others, they've gotten much worse. And uh, of course, you've been told the same about inflation, that it's transitory. And, and, and while it's, it certainly maybe still fits the bill of transitory, but, but transitory is a pretty ill-defined t- term for, for something that is, you know, already been pretty destructive to our economy. But you got to wonder in terms of these energy crises heading into 2022, you know, what does a natural gas picture look like here in the United in, in uh in the EU or or um you know even even here in the United States, uh um shale oil production, maybe you talked about this already, took a huge hit during the uh coronavirus um, pandemic, especially with the lower prices and whatnot. But hey, shale oil, if you're if you're just looking at you know barrels produced it's uh, it's making a comeback, and 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 I think there's a lot of people that would cheer that on, like, hey, yeah, I mean, look at us, we're you know we're we're getting closer to energy independence and and whatnot, you know, just like there were a couple of years ago, like, hey, we're net exporters now, but I mean, it's it's shale oil. I mean, that's not there's nothing sustainable about shale oil. There's nothing to 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 cheer about there. No, you're correct. And according to uh, some of the analysis I've seen, U.S. Uh, oil production is, is, is going to collapse. Uh, and that's due to shale oil production. Because there's just not, the drilling locations are the good ones, the, the high quality ones, have run out in the, the three older fields. And that's the Bakken, the Eagle Ford, and the, the Niobrara, which is in Colorado. So the only real growth is in the Permian. And that's where, that's where everybody's moving to because that that's the last place, you know? Uh, and, and so even though we could have some sustained growth, maybe a little bit of growth out of some of these other fields for a little while, they really start to get into trouble in the next several years. And then the Permian gets into trouble after 2025, but you know, you never know. There always could be geopolitical events. Things could happen that could really mess things up. So Unfortunately, there's only so many drilling locations. There's only so many economic reserves. And in three of the four fields in the United States, they have tapped into most of those economic reserves. So it, that's that's what it comes down to. And and unfortunately, other places around the world aren't set up like the United States to do shale. And and, and that's the that's the reason why I don't see shale oil and gas production happening. Uh, across the world, because the U.S. was kind of, uh, or it was a special case to do that. We have a lot of infrastructure all over the United States. A lot of places like in Argentina, they don't have that infrastructure. Yeah, you know, absolutely. 
one kind of interesting. So, so the big problem with shale oil uh, is 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 that a it's it's running out in terms of of the amount in the ground. But like you said, a lot of the the better fields, the, the better drilling locations are are used up, uh, which means you, you have to move to to less profitable ones that that require a higher amount of investment in order to you know extract the same amount of, of oil of, of energy out of the ground. And invariably, I mean, I think we have to make the link between um, shale oil. Um, um, and in fiscal policy and monetary policy and debt creation, essentially. I mean, you cannot, the shale oil boom, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it could not have gone on this long or to this extent if um, th- there wasn't the support for, for debt markets that exist, especially, you know, junk debt markets in, in today's economy. And if rates were not as low as they are. Yeah, well, there's this, you know, there's this idea that the uh, uh, Bernanke, Ben Bernanke, and doing the uh, lowering interest rates during the 2008-9 financial crisis, and then uh, doing QE, that's what saved the economy. Well, in a way, it was kind of like uh, the steering wheel. That's the steering wheel. You, you kind of move, you could, you know, go to one road or take another road. So if you take one road, that might be better. You know, the other road, you fall off a cliff. So then it steered it away from the cliff. That's what the federal reserve did, but it was the eight and a half million barrels a day of oil production growth. And it was funded by a lot of debt at very low interest rates. So that, that is correct. But again, even if the fed did the low interest rates, you have to have the oil to, to pull yourself out of the, out of the, out of the recession. You can't do it without the energy. See, I can tell, I, I can tell people I'm going to build a, a nice home, and I've got all these guys there that are going to do it. But we don't have any food. I don't have any equipment. You know, you need the energy to build that house. You can tell people what you're going to do, but you need that energy and a, a lot of you know materials to build that home. And so that's what the energy is. You you always need the energy first. And so yes, that's where we're at now. Unfortunately. The interesting thing is the shale industry is now making some money. But unfortunately, when prices of oil go up, it thunders through the entire economy and the price of pipe goes up, the price of everything goes up. So even though they're making some profits now, in the next several quarters, as these costs start to move into their into their into the finances, they're not going to be making the profits. And so I think this is because it was $100 a barrel from 2011, 12, 13 and a half of 14, and the shale industry didn't make any money. So there's other aspects going on that I don't want to get into too many details, but the shale industry is, is, is it's in its last legs. Uh, even though we've got a little bit more to go, I do see big issues, big problems happening by 2025. It's, it's, uh, you wonder if it's it's kind of one of those weird situations where higher oil prices over the coming months could, you know, if anything, kind of hasten the death of, of shale oil in the sense that that maybe that's going to give enough of these companies the impetus to, to stay or, or to invest to a greater extent. And, uh, and if anything, that's just going to hasten its decline. Well, you know, it's interesting. The uh, shale industry is experiencing the same problems everybody else is. They can't get enough workers. And they throw money at these people. I mean, it's not, it, work isn't easy if you're driving a truck and hauling water all day long 
or fracking sand, or if you're on a crew, either drilling a well or fracking a well, it's, it's very hard work and they get paid very well, but there's a shortage of them. So yes, if the price of oil goes up, yet yeah, you could see uh, more drilling rigs, but they also have to get the pipe. They have to get all this, they have to get all this stuff, all these materials to frack that well. And it, they're having problems with getting the stuff and getting the, the, uh, the labor to do it. And also one thing that they're doing, they've been drilling, they call them uh, DUCs, drilled uncompleted wells. They had an inventory. It, it, it reached over 8,000 of them. But since the pandemic shutdown, the industry has been going through those. So if let's say a company uh, completed 100 wells, instead of drilling 100 wells and completing 100 wells, they drilled maybe 60 wells and they completed 40 of those DUCs that month. So that lowers their capital expenditure because that, that, that well was already drilled. It's just sitting there. They got to come back and, and, and complete it. They frack it. And, and so th they're doing that. And that's what they've been doing. And it, the inventories of the DUCs continue to fall. But so in a year or so, when they've run out of those DUCs, they have to start doing the drilling again. And that's expensive. So the, when, I think the rubber is going to hit the road again for the shale industry in 2023, even with higher oil prices. So, so I, I, I bring it back a little bit. You're talking there about the, the lack of foresight that you oftentimes get in a more or less a free market. Now, some would argue you know, if an Austrian economist would probably argue that, hey, what's going on in the shale oil industry is is partly a product of, of you know, central banking or central planning and whatnot. But but that, that argument aside, um, you know, the catch 22 to all of this or, or the flip side, I guess, would be that uh, the 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 green energy movement, um, uh, the, the move into solar and, and wind power in particular, and, and it's it's got it's such a it's such a feel good message, Steve. It sounds so great. I mean, can you imagine getting all of your energy through the wind and, and through the, through the sun, right? Um, and maybe on a small scale that can work. But on the broader scale, um, well, we're just talking, you know, hastening the, the decline of shale oil, or in some cases, you know, hastening the the, the timeline as we move towards this energy cliff. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how green energy has has kind of played into that. Well, you know, it is true because you look at the, uh, most of the wind turbines and blades, they're white. And so they, people who live next to them, they go crazy because the noise, there's this hum that, that, I mean, that thing's moving at 120 miles an hour. It's just, it's moving, but it, it's so big, the tip of it doesn't look like it's moving fast, but it's moving fast. But the, 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 the roar, the hum of these wind blades just drives the people who live next to them crazy. But if you don't live next to them, you're driving down the highway. They look, you know, they look white to clean. And even solar power panels on top of your roof or out in a farm somewhere, a solar farm, they look clean too. I mean, you look at a coal plant and there's all this coal, it's dirty, it's black, and then all this the smoke that comes out. So, you know, if you look at the face value, wind and solar does look clean. But you see that it's, it's a Hollywood set. Because that's the Hollywood set. Now you go behind the Hollywood set and you've got all these poor people in third world countries extracting the, the, the toxic uh, minerals and metals to get to make wind and solar panels. And then it's transported dozens of times to all these different manufacturing plants. And so it's a real dirty uh, supply chain. 
and then so they when the wind turbine and blades are done and it comes out of the you know the hollywood set it looks nice but it's 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 a very dirty process throughout the entire supply chain and the worst thing is this uh, and i'll i'll conclude with this the problem with wind and solar besides they don't solve the problem they're still attaching to a system that wastes 87% of the power we only of all the power that we burn in a year only 13% is usable the rest is lost as waste heat as electricity that's lost on transmission lines a car you get next to a car the engine's very hot that's waste heat we're only using 13% of the power so even if you get a wind turbine i mean and you put it and let's say it was free you're still attaching it to a system that loses 87% of the power so even that's the problem we're facing there's no real solutions, but moving more green energy, you're just taking fossil fuels and you're making very expensive energy that 15, 18 years, you got to replace that wind turbine. In about 20 years, you got to replace that solar panel. So no one thinks about that. If we get real trouble with oil, natural gas and coal, you're not going to have the energy to make any more of those or make many of them. And so I think that's another aspect the market is totally forgotten about. You know, we're talking timelines here and, and we're talking you know, 2025, you know, 2030 and some of the the, the changes that we're going to see in the economy because of some of these energy problems. There's there's a lot of people that are maybe naive to that and, and, and would anticipate that green energy is going to grow at, at an exponential rate between now and then. And, and if you're looking at, you know, energy production. We, we have and we'll probably continue to see that for, for a time. Uh, maybe you disagree, but but eventually that's that's going to stop. Um, but but the other the other thing that that we're really seeing to a, a great extent in our economy is um, EVs, electric vehicles. Now, I, I personally, and, and maybe it's different up here in, in northern Minnesota uh, than, than elsewhere in the country. Certainly, it's going to be different than let's say like you know. Southern California, but but I haven't seen the EV adoption rate that that many have predicted uh, even through 2021. But but there's many that are predicting by you know 2025, 2030 that uh, the majority or, or a vast vast share of cars sold each year are going to be electrically powered. And and once again, it's a feel good message. It's a feel good story. And hey, EVs, you know, Teslas, I'm sure they're fun to drive and whatnot. Um, but as it relates to this, this energy problem, that's, that's problematic. Well, you know, it, it yes. And I think, I, I think what's, what's going to happen is this, uh, the, the high tech people are going to have the uh, the reaction that what happened in the Roaring Twenties, right? The Roaring Twenties was an amazing uh, t- uh, decade for the United States. There was all this tremendous growth, and then what happened? The Great Depression. People on bread lines. So this is I see the same the similar thing with the high tech people. You know, they're in there playing video games. Some of the best video. I mean, it's amazing these new video games and, and cryptos. It, it, Basically, no one's going to have to work. We're just going to trade. We're going to be uh, crypto Bitcoin trillionaires and no one's going to have to work. We're just going to you know, play around with digital stuff all day long. Well, I see it as the roaring 20s turning into the Great Depression. And here's I got a chart. The roaring 20s happened because the United States production increased that decade 154 percent. 
that's the highest it's ever it ever did when you compare it to other decades in the future. And just to give you an idea, if we look at 1928, right before the Great Depression, U.S. car manufacturing was about 4.4 million cars, automobiles. The second closest was Canada, 242,000. France was 210,000. Germany was 90,000. I mean, we produced so many cars and trucks. And then when we had all these cars and trucks, we built all these roads and highways because we had all the, all this oil. It was all the oil. It's the energy. And then because now we had all these people driving, you needed restaurants, you needed hotels. So it was the roaring 20s happened due to the massive increase in U.S. oil production. And so now with the EVs, all you're doing is taking fossil fuels and you're, and you're converting it to an electric vehicle. That's all you're doing. You're not, you're not really doing anything else. You're not really saving any fossil fuels because they, they have to get, you know, the battery that goes into a, a EV still has to get charged. And, and, and so I think this is the problem. What's going to happen with the green energy and EV? Uh, I, I think it's going to hit the same, the same 1929 stock market crash and the Great Depression. But it's going to be a, a mass psychology. They're going to wake up and say, oh, my God, we don't have the energy to do this. And the whole green energy thing is going to collapse, unfortunately, because we just don't have the energy to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting seeing um, people that are in the car space that are on board with this EV idea and, and sort of their their criticism. Um, they, they almost poke fun at some companies that haven't jumped on the bandwagon as much as others. Um I think it's Mazda, which actually has continued to to improve, you know, the the combustion engine and its efficiency. And we're talking energy efficiency here. They're still working on that. Um, Toyota, which has made huge investments in hybrid. And I mean, you look at the Prius, there's a lot to be said about the Prius, but it's it's incredibly efficient compared to a lot of other cars out there. And, and those two companies will get criticized because they're not moving into it as great an extent as Tesla or GM or some of those other companies or Ford. Um, but but oh gosh, you almost look from an investment perspective um, in terms of foresight. You almost wonder if some of those executives see through some of this and are thinking, you know, well, okay, I mean, maybe for the next couple of years, that's going to be the craze. But at some point, people are going to realize, you know, 2030, 2040, I just don't see a reality where we're 75, 80%, 90% of cars um, sold that year in those given years are, you know, EVs. It's just, that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of cost. It's just not scalable with our current system. Yeah, and let me take it one step further, because when you when we fell into the Great Depression, uh, uh, it was a disaster. It was a disaster, right? We had twenty five percent unemployment, uh, and, and so what what is commonly known or understood was that it was uh, Roosevelt's New Deal that helped bring us out of the depression. And some people say, well, you know, that really wasn't it because it, it, the, the U.S. economy didn't pull out until we got into World War II. And then we ramped up the, uh, the manufacturing and the, the war production. And you know what? The reason why we could have done that was because we were the Saudi Arabia in 1940. When, when World War II started, the U.S. was producing 70% of the oil in the world. And, and I've said this before, Saudi Arabia never produced that much of a percentage of oil. 
So we were the king, Saudi Arabia in the world, producing 70 70 percent of all the oil in 1940. That's the reason why the Allies won the war, because it was backed by the United States. It was backed by all that energy. And so I, I think this is the thing that we don't realize, that it was the energy production growth that pulled us out of the Depression and allowed the, the U.S. and allies to win the war. Well, you see, we're not going to have that energy to do the, the, the green energy EV transition. First of all, if it, even if it was, let's say wind turbines lasted a thousand years and, and solar panels lasted a thousand years and you ne- never had to charge your EV up. There was uh, you know, some new technology, you just got the battery and stay charged forever. You still, have to, you still have to build it. We won't have the energy to do the transition. That's the problem. Even if all those things lasted forever, we don't have the energy to do it. That, that that's the problem that they don't understand. And so I think the world is going to wake up in the next five to eight years by 2030. I think we're there going to be too many more problems with disruptions in the global supply chains. And, you know, the semiconductor is the epitome of the, uh, of high tech. And the, I talked about this too. LNG is the epitome of high tech energy. And so because we're now making all this LNG and shipping it, it's it's just so expensive. It's destroying the value of that natural gas by making it LNG, just to keep business as usual going. And I think we're going to get into serious trouble. So, so switching gears here a little bit, uh, we're referring to something that is coming up here, and and certainly this transition to green energy, EVs and whatnot. That's that's um, that's that's hastening it. That's speeding it up, if anything. Uh, so let's let's switch directions here. You know what what type of things can happen to to push that energy cliff out or to prevent it altogether? Fusion energy, uh, sort of a pipe dream, not not feasible in this timeline. Um, what are your thoughts on on nuclear energy? Uh, I want to talk more about the the uranium space here in a second, but what are your thoughts on it? I know it's not um, it's not been built in, in a lot of Western countries. It is. It is maybe slowly gaining some favor, but it hasn't been um, new reactors just don't come online often in the West. In the United States, I don't think we've started construction of new ones since I think the 1970s. Um, certainly some countries in, in, in Europe, France and, and Belgium and some others, they have a fair share of, of their energy production through uranium, through, through nuclear power. Um, but, but as a whole, we're mostly seeing that investment from, from some third world countries and then you know, China, uh, maybe South Korea to some extent. Japan slowly bringing some of theirs online. Is that, you know, is, is, it, is that part of the problem with, with nuclear power that, that we simply haven't made the investments or is it you know, just not, um, would it just not work even if we had made those investments? No. Even though we've used it, let me tell you, it, uh, nuclear power is, is the most expensive way to boil water. And that's all it's doing, boiling water and then creating you know, the, the power by spinning the generators. Uh, and so I had the pleasure of spending the summer when I was much younger with the, one of the four men credited putting man on the moon. That was Don Arabian. Don Arabian worked for NASA and he was head of the uh, MER, which was the mission evaluation room in Houston, Texas during the sixties. So when, and seventies. And so when the Apollo program, when they had the, we were shooting off the, uh, the Saturn five and we were doing all these moon uh, landings, 
it wasn't the guys in Cape Canaveral that were solving the problems. It was the guys in Houston in the MER, which was run by Don Arabian. So he was credited in putting, he was one of the four men credited in putting Man on the Moon. And I, I, I got to spend the summer with him working on this project in Cape Canaveral. And he told me, we talked about nuclear. He said, you know what? You're taking the power of the sun, you know, radiation, and you're putting that in your backyard. See, we still have all this spent fuel of all these nuclear reactors in the United States, and it's still being held at these nuclear reactors, these facilities, most of it. It's that we have we haven't found a place to get get rid of it. That's number one. So the the full cycle energy return on investment of of nuclear power, uranium nuclear power, is too low when you factor in the entire the, the entire cycle, full cycle analysis to decommissioning and then getting rid of the uh, the waste. And we really haven't figured out how to do that yet. But let's say. You know, we could just shoot it up and, and, and let the aliens take care of it. Let, let's say that that happened. The problem with, with uranium and nuclear is your tr- the, the world is designed on a just-in-time liquid fuel system. Boats and cars and trucks and planes moving fast, moving, transporting it. That's run on liquid fuels. It's not run on electricity. We manufacture stuff by electricity. We transport it by the liquid fuels. And you cannot transition the transportation from liquid to electricity soon enough. And also, you're still, even if you can make nuclear power, many nuclear power plants, you still have to realize it takes highly complex supply chain to make the thousands and thousands of parts that these companies do to make these nuclear power plants, even if it's a small nuclear power plant. And you need a very complex functioning supply chain because a lot of those parts come from countries all over the world and and materials that are mined all over the world. People forget that. So if the supply chain is going to break down, you're not going to be able to make a lot of these nuclear power plants because you're not going to have the, the, the supply chain to do it. And so I think, and then again, even if you could do it, Matt, in conclusion, you're still attaching that nuclear power plant to a transmission line that's 87% inefficient. You're still doing that. You're still wasting all this, this power. And so you haven't solved that, that, that problem. And so I think that's the reason why we don't have any plan B. And unfortunately, all these, these supposed solutions, even uranium is supposed to be better, nuclear power, it's not better. Uh, and it, it, we just don't have a plan B, unfortunately. So, so all of that aside, I, I knew you were going to see that. Say that, Steve. You always got you. You always end with the uh, the downer. No, I, I, I agree <laughs> that there's not a plan B. Um, I think I think nuclear energy is interesting, and um, and I think it's it's maybe you know there's talk of well we put nuclear reactors and and uh, the uh, the aircraft carriers why why can't we do it on cargo ships or or what have you, and, and I think that's you know there's there's a there's a thousand reasons why, um, but but all that aside, and, and maybe this is something you can 
can go ahead and say, well, I haven't checked in on it lately. But but from an investment perspective, what, what are your thoughts on the Iranian market? I bring this up because it's something that's interesting to me, something some of my listeners are interested in, and, and something that has attracted a lot of attention um, in 2021. What are your thoughts on the Iranian market, Uranium miners, um, from an investment perspective, short, medium, long term? Well, it... Uh Matt, I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge based on the uranium market, but I I, I have um, accessed a couple of uranium market reports, and I plan to dig into it. Uh, the U.S. has a uh, about thirty to five to forty percent of the uranium supply. It's already in a contract. It's already there, and, and that's over the next five years. They have so they have about forty percent. Uh, or maybe a little bit more uh, of the uranium, it's it's contract. So if the price goes up, they, they, they're not going to be impacted. So it's the 60% that the nuclear power plants or the people who use uranium, the companies that use uranium, uh, those that's where they're going to have to get the, the, the price on the open market. So, you know, I, I think the thing is ever since Sprott started the uranium market, you know, it's another, it's kind of another you know, uh, big spike in interest, but I, there could be some speculation in, in the uranium market. Uh, don't get me wrong, but the best way for me to, to, to talk about that is I, I, I will be putting out an uranium market report. Um, and even though we could see some speculative, speculative moves in uranium, uh, the mid to long term, I, it's not going to be a viable solution. I think the, the more high tech and, and let me let me talk about something I've mentioned a few times. There is something that I'm going to talk to Dr. Louis Arnault, and he's working on this NGENI technology. And it's the only technology that I know of that actually tries to tap into that 87 percent of inefficient wasted energy. And that's that's where you got to tackle the solution. And he's actually has a system now that's very low tech. And the components are very easy and inexpensive to acquire. And that, to me, I don't think we're going to be able to do that. I, the, the, I think the system is too far gone, but I think some smart people are going to understand that. And, and, and so that's the only real sol- energy solution I see for businesses is to adapt this NGENI kind of a technology that taps into and making the energy much more efficient, and we we can use much less of it. And so, I think uranium and nuclear is just more technology and more trouble when there. Are, this NGENI to me is safer, and it's easier than something that's high tech. And again, what are we going to do with all the spent fuel? And I mean, look how look how bad things got with just one Fukushima. Can you imagine if we have 10 or 20 of them? Because what people don't realize, you, you need to continue keeping that spent fuel. It's got to, it's got to continue to keep cool. If that doesn't, if that, if, if, if somehow the grid goes down, you've got these nuclear power plants doing the same thing as Fukushima. And, and people don't realize that. So I, again, I'm, I look at more of the problems, even though there could be speculation with uranium, there could be short-term profits made there. I think it's a bit much bigger headache moving forward, Matt. 
you know, in terms of, of complexity with, with energy and its um, production and, and the lack of efficiency, it, it brought to mind. So this is a bit of an aside um, formula one. Okay. So they, um, you know, the, maybe the premier racing series in the world, uh, very specific rule set that each team has to follow in these races. And, and of course the engineers use all sorts of, of high tech and extremely expensive methods to, to, um, to come up with a faster car. And, and sometimes what they've come up with is it, it, it finds its way into our everyday cars. And I don't know if F1 kind of came up with, with, for instance, the turbo and internal combustion engines, but, but certainly they, they used it before. Maybe it was as economical as it is you know, today. Um, but it brought to mind that, you know, nowadays the formula one, they use a, they call it a, a power unit. They don't call it an engine anymore. Cause the engine, the internal combustion engine is just one component of it, six different parts of it, but, but they have all these different components that capture either create energy. They, they have their hybrid, their electric system. They have the inter- internal combustion engine, which creates energy when it burns the fuel, but then they have some different components that capture energy, um, one of which captures it from like braking uh, kinetic energy, another one that basically captures some of the heat from the engine and recycles it. And, and for a Formula One for Formula One car, I mean, that's, oh, I don't know, I don't know what the numbers are on it, but maybe an extra, you know, 50, 30 horsepower, whatever, that's, that's race winning for them. But imagine the amount of complexity in that. I think that's a key of what you were talking about there. And I know next to nothing about what you were referring to there in terms of a a uh, way to, to make that more efficient. But that's kind of the key there, that there's ways out there to make this more efficient. It's just not, it, it's incredibly complex, incredibly expensive to do something like that. Well, you see, the, uh, the people think the semiconductor, and, and very intelligent people think the semiconductor is more efficient. But you see, they are looking at a very narrow scope of what that efficiency means. Because you go, look how small it is. Look what a computer can do now. But we just forgot, or let's say we just wrote off, right? Uh, Three or four decades of people going to college all over the world, learning how to do computers. And then, and all these companies doing all this, uh, you know, research and development that got us here. We, We just want to write all that off. And now if you look at some of these fab plants, like they have in, uh, in the, the Taiwan semiconductor, they have their own specialized gas refinery next to it because they need gas to process the chips. And if you look at the pipes, it is the, one of the most complex things you've ever seen, a fab, a massive fab plant. And so then you have to look at the, because there's this ultraviolet light, this uh, EUV lithography machine that actually imprints the, uh, the chip. And these things cost $150 million. They cost more than a 747 or a 737. And they can fit into a room. And you need a constant number of these uh, maintenance guys to keep running that thing. But you know how many parts go in that machine? Just that one machine is 50,000 parts from hundreds, thousand uh, parts manufacturers. So you need that entire supply chain to make that semiconductor. And if any part of that supply chain breaks down, you can't make that machine. You can't make that semiconductor. And I see, see, that's the thing everyone forgets about. 
the time binding of all the, the knowledge and the energy took to get us here, and then the massive global supply chain that, uh, because this is what, uh, and I'll conclude here, the semiconductor fab plant that makes semiconductors is ahead of a very long snake. And even though the snake can bite you, and, and that's, the, that's the venomous part, the dangerous part, that snake needs that long tail, that long body to function. And so does the, 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 uh, the semiconductor system. The, the, the fab plant needs that long supply chain to make it work. And we just forget about that. And so I think that's the, you know, that's the problem. And so technology, the more advanced technology you have, the more technology you have, just think of it's burning more energy. It's not, it's not make it's not making it more efficient. It's just burning more energy. So if you're going to add a lot more technology, it's going to be even more advanced technology. You're just burning a hell of a lot more energy. And that's what it comes down to, Matt. So sort of to conclude here, as the rubber sort of meets the road in the coming years, bringing this back to precious metals, individually, how does that factor into your life, whether that's from an investment perspective, from a standard of living, from a, you know, trying to weather the storm, how does, how do, how are precious metals helping you? And I ask that from a, from a, from a curious, from a, I want to, not at all doubting that they can help. I think they absolutely will. But, but I want to hear what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, when I first started investing in silver and I bought my first ounce of silver in 2002, at $4 and 52 cents an ounce. And as you know, when we hit the funny, you know, when the price of silver went to 20 and it came down, you know, went to eight, that was gut wrenching for me. And then, it, and then a few years later, it was up to 50 and then it, it came down, you know, but in the last, let's say five years plus, I've been focusing more on energy. I no longer worry about the price of silver. A lot of people do. I mean, they, they just lose sleep. They talk. They they talk about the comex. They talk about the banksters, and what they what they have failed to realize is that the banksters, the supposed manipulation, the comex, all you know, the the, the fraudulent uh, ETFs. That's all old news. That was relevant a decade ago, or you know, five years ago. It's no longer relevant because the energy problems are going to make everything so much worse. But the precious metals, the one thing the precious metals are going to do, and this is how I see it, Matt, I don't know where the price is going to be, but I think it's the value is going to be much higher. Logically, that's just what is it, my logic suggests. The thing is, the precious metals, physical precious metals are going to offer you better options in the future than most everything else, because most everything else is going to get into serious trouble. So even though you have to live in a home, I see real estate prices collapsing. People think we've got a shortage of homes. That is a, <laughs> that is a, that's, that's false. We don't have a shortage of homes. That's just, that's, that's kind of this concept, but pretty soon we're going to have a surplus of homes because we're not going to have the energy to run them. So you're going to have people moving into their homes with their family because they can't afford that home or they're not going to have the available energy to, to, to run these the, the entire economy. And so this is the problem why I am very content. I sleep well at night with owning physical metals because I, I see those as the most valuable assets to own as the things start to get worse. And then you've got to do other things too. 
match. You've got to you've got to learn how to grow some of your own food. You've got to become less dependent on energy as best you can. And so those are very important things people need to consider as well. Well, and I think that's the really interesting thing as I kind of reflect on this and some of our past conversations is, you know, if you were to, for, for instance, we were talking green energy and, and, and let's say you have somebody listening here that's fully invested in green energy. I don't mean just monetarily, but this is, this is our future. This is the only way we're going to save the planet, et cetera. You know, what you're saying here, you're not saying let's, um, let's not care about the environment or air quality or anything like that. Um, you're saying we're going to have to drastically adjust our lives, maybe in the very way that that many green energy or or you know climate change activists and whatnot would would encourage us to do. So we we got to find ways to to live our lives more efficiently, and that you know that takes a lot of different shapes. Uh, you know things like biking to work or using a more fuel efficient vehicle that. <laughs> as we're talking, maybe isn't as uh, uh, complex as some of those other ones out there. Um, um, electricity use, heating in, in your own um, home and in your own life. That's what we're talking about here. And, and that jives very well with with the sort of a component of that that green revolution, just maybe not the the energy production side of it. No, you're, you're correct. And I, you know, I think where we need to go, and there's been some very in, intelligent people on this, we, we need to degrow. It's called degrowth. Now, you, there's two ways you can do that. Maybe I've mentioned this before. You can, you can manage the degrowth. And, you know, we, you know, somehow politicians get, you know, a, a spine. I don't blame them because the public only wants to hear what they want to hear. But, you know, some the, the, the politicians, the leaders come out and say, we're going to have serious troubles with energy. Green energy is not going to solve them. They're just going to make it worse. So we have to figure out how to degrow in a managed way. That's one way. That's not going to happen because that that's unfortunately, that's not the human way. We're, we're, we're too individualistic now. So the second thing that's going to happen, it's going to be a chaotic degrowth. It's, it's going to happen on its own. And it's going to be every man for themselves. And so, or every country for itself. And, and so I think, I don't know how that plays out. I'd rather see number one, where we, we would say, all right, let's talk about this logically. But, you know, you, you look at what's happening with China, trying to attack, you know, Taiwan. And look at all the wars. We, we How many world wars have we had just in the last hundred years? And then you go back in history, it's nothing but wars. So we really, as a species don't seem to have a good way of solving problems. We seem to use anger to get into more trouble. And that that's how I look at this now. So individuals, so what this is what I this is my recommendation. Stop counting on the, the politicians. Don't worry about the elite boogeyman that's going to control everything because they're they're going to get in much worse problems than the people. Because the elite are going to lose so much more of their wealth than anybody can imagine. So stop worrying about the elite. And it's time to start focusing on yourself, your family, and your local area, because that's all you really can do, especially when energy gets into trouble, because then we're going to start going back to regional, local ways of, of, of economies. And so I think that's, that's, the most, that's the best thing for people to do now is to forget politicians and the elite, because they're, not going, to, they're going to get into so much trouble, they, they can't solve these issues. Only individuals, families, and local local areas can solve these problems. Amen to that. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in that, regardless of of uh, 
people's outlook on the future that that it has to be individualized. You got to look out for yourself. You can't change these things, even if even if, you know, there's some ways, as you kind of talked about, there's some way politicians or central planning can fix these problems. They won't. Um, and, and we might as well stop worrying about them and find ways that we can, you know, as you said, degrowth, degrowth our own lives. And, and that doesn't mean necessarily a lower standard of living. Um, but even if it does, uh, standard of living, I don't know, it maybe, maybe it's overrated sometimes. You know, sometimes we put emphasis on things that maybe we call standard of living, but, but have very little bearing on our happiness. I'm not talking about um, getting rid of indoor plumbing or, or things like that, air conditioning. I'm just talking, there's a lot of, of luxuries that we have here in the first world and here in the Western countries that, um, th- that we're going to have to get rid of at some point. And, you know, when I say, you know, you, the individuals have to take care of themselves, you know, if you go and look at many of the world's religions, they, they talk about this. You can't take care of your neighbor or somebody else until you take care of yourself in your own house. So, you know, you've, you, you, you have to be responsible with yourself and you need to have your own successful business, home business that is sustainable before you can help anybody else. So people, it's always been our responsibility, but due to all this wonderful energy, and, and then the government's coming in and, and trying to manage all this. And actually, they've been trying to. You see, you know, the collapse of the Roman Empire, people say it was the debasement of the currency. Well, that was the symptom. But the collapse of the Roman Empire happened when they reached peak fuel, wood fuel. They didn't run out of silver ore. They ran out of wood to, pro- to process, to smelt, to make the silver. And so they had to debase the currency to continue this massive empire as they as best they saw fit. So you, you, you've got these politicians trying to keep everybody happy with, with less energy. So you've got to give them credit. You could blame them, but you have to give them credit. And, and even though there's corruption in different levels, that's what the politicians are trying to do now, even though they're not doing it correctly. They're just trying to keep the whole system from imploding. That's, that's all they're doing as the energy return on investment continues to fall. Unfortunately, you can't print barrels of oil. And that, that's the one thing these, these the Fed and central banks and, and governments are going to be helpless. And that's why it always comes back to the individual, because the individual is responsible for himself and his family and his local area. And I'm not talking selfish. I'm talking responsibility for yourself. And so that, that's a whole different, that's a whole different economic understanding that we, because a lot of, there's a lot of people who are very selfish and they make their living on taking advantage of the people. That's a whole different ball game that I'm talking about. So I hope that makes sense in, in this conclusion. Absolutely. Steve, it's been real. I, I, I want to, I want to thank you once again for coming on today. This is, this is great. This is, gives me a lot personally to chew on. Um, in terms of, of its ramifications for my own life and for my own family. And, and, and like I said earlier, I mean, since the last time we talked, um, wow, it's, you, you look at things through a different lens when you're talking energy, when you think of every uh, wrapper you throw away, when you think of every time you take a trip to the store, energy, and, and that energy is, is not going to be as plentiful, um, as easy to come by 
in the future. So I want to thank you once again for, for coming on and, and chatting with me for the past hour plus. Yeah, you know, I appreciate it. And maybe, you know, uh, sometime next year, we can see how things go because unfortunately, you know, I, I, the right now European natural gas levels are 78% of where they should be. 78%. And the winners just hit it. And so uh, in leaving in leaving this this interview, I want your listeners to understand if they want to understand what's happening with the energy cliff and how close we are, the, the best gauge is the energy inventories around the world. When we start to see these inventories are no longer growing as much and they're, they're trending lower and then they, they you know, there's a cycle. It, it, it adds back in during a part of the year, but then it, it uses it up or it, it uses it and it lowers the inventory. If we see the trend of these inventories continuing to trend lower and there's very little inventories, you know, a year or two or three years down the road, that means when those inventories run out, there's no backup. There's no battery. The United States has got about 90 days of oil. Well, we hear the Biden administration want to tap the strategic oil reserve. Well, if they tap that and that, that continues to fall, and it has been falling, if we can't increase that, that's like a one and done. If those inventories get so low, you can't increase them. You can't tap into them anymore. You don't have that buffer. So we need to continue to look at what's happening with the U.S. and and global energy inventories. And if they continue to trend lower and that buffer gets smaller and smaller, we know we're getting closer and closer to the energy cliff. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a great piece of advice looking at the EU and and their problems. And and gosh, you wonder what happens if they get a, a winter you know, five, 10 degrees colder than usual. I mean, that's, that's um, frightful to, to think of what it would be like to, to live in one of those countries. Uh, Steve, uh, wh- where can people find you? Because I know that this is, this interview is great, but you've got so much more um, o- over at, at your place. Yeah. I, I, it's at the SRS rock report, SRS rock report.com. We we've got, uh, we put out some free po- free member articles, but we have silver and gold posts. I spend, I spend, 60 hours a week working on the content for the silver and gold members. And I do put out some YouTube videos a couple of times a month, but there, if you really want to understand more of the details of how this is unfolding, uh, that's the information we put out there. We talk about the energy we talk about, and right now I'm, I'm getting ready to do the top four gold miners, what it costs to produce gold in the third quarter, in the first three quarters of this year. And, and so and then I'm going to do the silver. Uh, so we have an idea of what's changing. Uh, you really can't find that information really on the internet. So that's where the, the information is. And if you'd like to check us out, uh, it's important that people understand this information to make better decisions in the future. All right, Steve. Well, I'll let you get going. I think it's it's evening here, but it's, I guess, coming up in the afternoon where you're at. So uh, once again, I, I really appreciate this, and, and I look forward to uh, doing this again in the future. All right, Matt, and you have a you have a great holiday season when we can still enjoy these holidays. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks, Steve. Thank you.